0: Live a happy, healthy life with your kids. Welcome. Heather Shoemaker began writing books in elementary school, but then went on to work in land conservation for two decades and was a coastal program director for protecting Arcadia's dunes. What I can't wait to learn from her today is how she went from her background in science to becoming a national speaker on parenting and early childhood topics with her two renegade parenting books. Listen to these titles it's okay not to share. You heard that right. And it's okay to go up the slide and other renegade rules of raising competent and compassionate kids. And she is an advocate for free unstructured play in homes and at school. I'm absolutely thrilled to have her on my show today. Heather, welcome to Momnificent.
1: Oh, thanks for having me.
0: So Heather, What led you to write these these books? What happened from being involved in your land conservation and science background to writing your two most recent books?
1: Mm. Well, I've never had someone ask me that exact question, linking the land conservation with the early childhood work. But you know what? I think it's all the same. Because the land conservation work I was doing is really all about people and psychology and what makes people tick and um, persuasion of of ideas. And so you can't um, work together to save natural habitats unless you're working with humans. And that's the same with all the early childhood work. It's all about emotions and expectations and aligning what our expectations are with what they should be as far as in early childhood with early child development. So yeah, (laughs) I think actually the genesis for these two books, which are renegade books. And I've met very few humans who have agreed with all of the, the, 20-some rules in each one, usually some people will swallow some and say, oh, yes, that's right, and then they'll read another one that really jolts their world, and they have to think about it sometimes for years before coming to a conclusion. However, the genesis for these ideas came from my childhood preschool in Columbus, Ohio.
0: Okay, so you, okay, all right add anything from that into this. Cause I'm so curious what you were going to go off into any of that way. So how about if we start with one of the points in your book where you talk about how I love, this is going to shake. It shook me up when I heard it. It's safer for kids. If they talk to strangers, what that totally contradicts everything I was told growing up and what I still hear parents telling their kids today.
1: Mm-hmm. So
0: yeah, walk us through that one. Cause I'm sure that's a big shot coming out now too.
1: Yeah, I think that it's one of those things that, that we hear as kids that maybe our parents told us, um, st- don't talk to strangers, um, stranger danger. And I think even in this day and age, people um, parrot that message even more and more and get more fearful about it. But those aren't the, the skills a young child needs. F- f- for, um, and I'm talking about, when I'm talking about young children, I'm, I'm mostly talking about ages two to six, but some of it you know, goes on into um, further elementary school. Younger kids in that age group—they don't even understand what the word "stranger" means. Um, a stranger to them may be somebody with a beard or somebody with a hat. Or so it, the concept is very odd. And if as soon as someone tells them their name, they'll think, "Oh, that's not a stranger because I know who they are now." So it's 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 confusing. Not getting the message across is one thing, but also it doesn't work. It doesn't give the kids the skills that they actually need to stay safe in the world. And one of the biggest skills that kids need is to listen to their gut. There's that kind of "uh-oh" feeling that all human beings get when something's off, when something's wrong, when they're not feeling safe. That could be from grandma who's just giving you a big, too squeezy hug with the wrong kind of perfume, and you know, and. and and too many little baby kisses and things that if that is the child doesn't like it they get that uh uh-oh feeling and it's okay they have a chapter called it's okay not not to kiss grandma teaching children to understand the boundaries that their bodies need to set and even you can tell grandma sweet grandma sorry if anyone's listening who's an adoring grandmother even as uh doting parents and aunts and uncles and um and grandparents, we need to be able to set respect those body limits that a child sets when they're uncomfortable. So think about who actually helps a child in distress if they're not right with mom or dad or their caregiver. It's the the neighbor walking down the street, it's somebody that they don't know walking the dog. It's maybe it's a police officer, maybe it's not, maybe it's the opposite of that. But it's somebody they probably don't know who can help reunite them with their mom or dad, help find them a band-aid. Get them help. If they're lost or scared, um, it's going to be a stranger that helps, not the stranger that hurts. And, and unfortunately, the, the people who statistically hurt our kids the most, whether we're talking about um, you know, sexual abuse or anything, is people they already know. It's people they already know in their friend circle and in their families. So telling kids to be scared of strangers and not listening to their own internal clock of danger is actually getting them maybe more confused about when to talk up, um, speak up when something's truly wrong.
0: And I think it's even more difficult now because of COVID, because with masks and social distancing I mean, I, you could see people kind of moving away towards just saying hi to a stranger walking by you in the store or down the street. But now it seems like we even do it less and less. And yet we need kids to sort of do this more and more. And you can see kids who are comfortable around strangers. And we always make, I'll speak for myself. I always like notice and I just say, wow, they're just, they just talk to anybody. And and it's, it seems like such a, a unique phenomenon, but You're saying like, that should be the norm and here's why that's helpful and beneficial.
1: All people need practice interacting socially with, within a family, within peers, within the world. And so if kids don't have that chance to gain what we call street smarts, they're not necessarily going to understand the warning bells that come to when something doesn't seem right. So teach kids to listen to the uh-oh feeling, teach kids to come tell somebody they trust if something's not right, but let them experiment. And yes, you can talk to strangers through a mask. It's quite possible.
0: And, you know, it's funny, Heather, because I feel like every year I look at my teachers and say that we see more and more kids coming to school lacking the social skill. And I think sometimes inadvertently we kind of think Maybe parents, as parents are growing up, and, and the generations are changing. Maybe parents aren't teaching them these skills. But maybe it's it's things that I know we're going to get to a couple co- topics um, in a few minutes here, where it's really making me think about maybe where our education system is maybe limiting what we're doing to help them in these skills that we'll talk about in a few minutes that are, they're going to need for life in 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 this next generation or two. Um, so you got you got me, Rick. Like really, really thinking. This is this is really good. Um, so I also love how you talk about the importance of play because my kindergarten teachers struggle every year with meeting all the district requirements and begging me to find time in the schedule for how important it is for the kindergartners to play. And and you mentioned true play. So maybe you could help me and my audience understand what you mean by true play.
1: Yeah. Well, uh, what's wonderful is that a lot of adults are catching on to the idea that these early years are really important for brain development and that play is wonderful But what I'm seeing as a consequence of that is I've seen a lot of what I call false play, where I might go in and observe a kindergarten class or a preschool class. And they are saying, the adults are saying, oh, yeah, we believe in the importance of play. But what they're doing is, say, um, taking some blocks and putting them in the shape of a T and saying, um, this is a T, take your blocks and put them in the shape of a T. That's that's teacher-directed task. That's not... True play true play would be pouring out the blocks and and seeing what the kids do with them. I've also seen uh, teachers have a dress-up area or a kitchen center in the kindergarten room and then say, you be the waiter, you be the customer, and sort of direct all the roles. So the true practice that kids need, they need to be able to negotiate these roles and rules themselves, kid to kid, and they need a chance to experience conflict. I'm not talking about punching each other in the face. I'm talking about, I want to be the mom. No, I want to be the mom. And kids having different ideas. That's what conflict is. Sometimes it goes physical. But most of the time, it's a clash of ideas. And how can we solve this problem? Those are essential skills. We cannot teach children about peace by singing Kumbaya. It's a really nice song. There's a lot of songs about friends and peace and sunshine and rainbows. That's fine for singing. If you want to sing and be happy, sing a nice song. But it does not teach kids how to solve real-life problems. They only gain those skills of peace, those skills of being a diplomat by experiencing firsthand conflict. And then maybe with adult guidance, learning how to get themselves out of it, problem-solve, negotiate, and gain those social skills. Mm. So there's
0: one of my teachers told me last year, that there's an international day of play. Did you hear about that? Yeah, yeah, I know. I guess we got to get start somewhere. (laughs) But after I was preparing for this interview, I was like, wait a second. If I could get Heather to help my staff with ideas of what they could do to create that day um, for true play, do you have any ideas? You you shared a couple that I could see happening in, like, the K-1 classes. But what would you say for, like, a 2-3 class or, like, a 4th, 5th grade class class? just any ideas off the top of your head that they they, they could spring off of to provide this.
1: Mm-hmm. You know, kids of any age, if they're given free time to be themselves, let's talk about recess because that's pretty much what... Um, free play time would look like for these older kids so recess is a time when the kids get to be themselves nobody's telling them what to do they can stand still if they want to they could sit down and not do anything if they want to they can think their own thoughts but it's a time that people aren't bossing them around um it's different than gym class you know where the teacher tells you what to do and you don't get to decide who's on your team it's it's a break from all that and so that, that release to be yourself and, again, to experience conflict with the other kids um, is essential, that that time off. It can happen in a classroom. It can happen outdoors. But it's time for the kids to choose their own activity and choose who they want to talk to um, and how who they want to be with. This This is something that's both relaxing for children and extremely challenging at the same time.
0: So what do I do when when maybe my teachers fear? Yeah, but I can't just make it all unstructured free play time. Like it, it I don't know. It's like this fear of like things are going to go crazy, or I have to provide some structure. Um, but but because it sounds like you're really saying like give them free time.
1: Yeah, um, my elementary school back in the seventies had three recesses a day, and I uh, that's what I advocate for is. Kids need, I mean, adults need breaks, too. We, we can't just work at full tilt, at full attention all day long, no matter what age we are. I um, mean, it actually helps the learning. So if you get 20 minutes to run around and be yourself and get that big energy out, um, then you're able, your brain is better able to settle down and, and learn how to read or tackle that science project. But if you have to keep at the grindstone the whole time, uh, all of our brains turn to mush, no matter if we're in second grade or whether we're in middle age.
0: Yeah. So recess, yeah. Business,
1: it's not, it, it has to stop, be considered a waste of time. Oh, we don't have time for recess. We don't have time for free play in our day. You have to make time for that because if you don't make time for that, the rest of it's just um, going in one ear out the other.
0: I can't believe you're squat three recesses a day. That seems like a foreign
1: concept. And one was an hour long. The lunch one was an hour long.
0: Oh, my gosh. So um, up until last year, when we came in for part of the year and were remote and in person, up until then, we only had one recess, 30 minutes per grade, every grade, right? But when we came back and created our schedule last school year, we realized we needed to give the kids a little bit more of a break. So for kindergarten, I can't remember if we did it for first grade, too. But in kindergarten, we gave them two recess blocks and and we continued that this year. And as soon as I listened to you talk about recess and those extra recesses, I was like, wow, I'm so I'm actually so much more glad we're doing it. Like we just somehow came up with that by accident, by like rethinking because COVID has helped us, made us rethink a lot of things. And there's some really positive outcomes to it that that we've kept. And we're so glad that we went through all that to get to this point. Um, but you also talk about the benefits to providing that true play opportunity for kids and going into, I'll call them what we usually think of them as 21st century skills, but creating these skills in kids that they're going to need for jobs that probably haven't even been created yet that don't even exist today. Can you speak to those benefits that I love that you share?
1: Well, I'm not sure if I can think exactly which ones you're talking about. But to my mind, it pops up things like flexibility um, an ability to solve conflicts, as we've already talked about, and creativity. Um, I've seen kids who have been overly structured, whether it's in a Montessori um, program that teaches young kids, this is how you use the material and this is how you work with it. Um, Entering a free play space, standing stock still and saying, somebody tell me what to do. I don't know what to do. Um, All kids know how to play, but they may fear that they're not living up to the adult expectations if they haven't had practice doing it. Um, So creativity, knowing that they can have their own ideas and explore those um, without feeling that they must follow how it's done. Um, Because kids bring their own ideas and their own interests and they can um, they'll get the highest level of learning and involvement and engagement comes when you're hitting what the child is curious about or can be led to be curious about.
0: Yeah, and I think you said, you also say about the true play that it's to define it, it's kids bursting with ideas. Did I get that right? Sure, yeah, that sounds sense. I love, I, love, I love how you said that. I, I heard you say that. I read that in, in, in one of the other um, interviews that you did. And, and then, so maybe we're not giving the kids all that opportunity for that letting out their energy or to create and play. So is that why we're, we're seeing kids who, who, who look like they have like ADHD symptoms or um, what, what's, what's your thought and and what you know about around that that can help us?
1: Well, if you think about it, a lot of young kids are asked to sit still and be quiet for extremely long lengths of time um, I am already wiggling because it's hard to sit still, you know. And and adults we don't necessarily do it. They find that in studies that kids that um, have ADHD actually benefit even more than anybody else with um, with extra recess and extra time to be themselves. They're able then to focus during the times of of academic learning if they're given um more recess time so you treat the ADHD Mm. not by punishing the kids and saying oh you're red on the behavior chart and you have to stay in for recess that's the absolute worst um Mm. because it just makes the situation worse if if the behavior is going down and the academics are going down you have to find out what the kid needs and a lot of times it's that your expectations are, are not fitting what the child needs from a child development point of view. So yes, give them space to move. Um, I particularly see this in the younger grades um, with boys being told they're bad. Um, boy children, um, they've tracked, they put motion monitors on kids, boys and girls, and boys actually do move more than girls do. Doesn't mean that girls don't need to move because we do too. But boys have to move and they have to move a lot. And so everything that their body is telling them to do, screaming at them to do, to move, the teachers are telling them is bad and that they're a bad kid. And and so, and then those consequences pile on. So they, you know, you didn't get your your um, work done. So now you have to stay in for recess. So it just, it's a, perpetuating thing. And if if they have too much group time where the kids can't actively engage, they just have to sit there. Those kids, those active kids, they're going to be poking their neighbor. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's that's an attempt to play, to engage, to be part of the world. But it's seen as bad behavior. It's seen as misbehavior. And instead of if there's a kid poking, it means that you (laughs) what you're setting out to do is probably too long and too um, boring and you need to find a way to get the kids moving and engaged. Um, So I, yeah, I've seen kids sit through incredibly long group times with the teacher talking at them that I am so bored in the first five minutes. I can barely sit still. Mm -hmm.
0: And I know I, I take my own breaks. I self-monitor myself we go to the bathroom, we get that cup of coffee, we get the phone, go, we stand up, we look at our phone. Like we do all this natural incorporating of those, those mental brain breaks for ourselves. And yet somehow we, we just think kids like you're going to sit for 20 minutes. They and must listen. control you. And yeah. 98% of the class is. So you think that it's good and it works, but then you got the one or two that are just these outliers. And then it's like, oh my gosh, why can't they you know sit down, focus? I always have to remind them, but i love that you're helping us think differently to to then look look at their structure of activities and and build in some of that break or maybe free free time free like the investment on the end will be such a big return if if we incorporate those from what you're saying? When you see yeah. the
1: strengths of, really these, some of some of the kids who are poking and and you know getting on that bad behavior chart. Those are the ones who may have some of the most incredible leadership skills and creative ideas. That if they are allowed to let those blossom, um, they cease to think of themselves as I don't I'm a bad kid. I don't fit in at school. I mean, what a terrible thought to have in kindergarten or first grade because there's a lot of years of schooling ahead. So the goal of those first couple years of school needs to be that that all children no matter where how they come in feel that school is a welcoming place for them and that it's a place of joy and I think that's the first thing we tend to stamp out in school is joy and curiosity of learning all kids are curious to learn there but sometimes our definition of what learning is is far too narrow
0: Mm, this is so good okay so I'm going to shift just a little bit into your topic that you talk about homework because you said there were over 180 um, research um, activities done to show that there's limited impact at the elementary school for, for, for the benefits of homework. And just to give you a little history, like eight years ago at my school, my previous principal had all of us read the no homework myth by Alfie Cohn. And we 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 were rethinking the homework we were giving kids. And it kind of translated out into the community that we were a no homework you know policy school. And we had parents withdraw their kids and go to private because they wanted homework and they completely disagreed with this. And slowly over the last few years, I have parents coming back, asking, asking for more and more homework and comparing us to the private schools and, and wanting that. Uh, So uh, what are your thoughts on that? Talk, 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 talk me through what, what should I do in my position?
1: (laughs) Well, I went to an elementary school that had no homework. There was no, no homework policy. There just was no homework, but I actually sometimes cried on weekends because I loved school so much and I wanted to be back at school and I had a good home life too. but school was so exciting and engaging and it was all project-based hands-on with three resources a day, but we were learning at the top of our game. Um, we were mixed ages, you know, grades four, five, six, one, two, three, for example. Um, sometimes the the sixth grader sitting next to me couldn't read. And I, as a fourth grader, was trying to help her. We were all economic classes. We were a big city school. So it wasn't that we were all a privileged, you know, little enclave. But this school could do wonders because to get there, we were exploring and learning. Um, I used to share a school bus. <laughs> with a more traditional school. And those kids had textbooks. And we didn't have textbooks, except they were on the shelf, we could read them if we wanted. Um, And I was so jealous that these kids had homework and textbooks and traditional school type things, because I knew that's what kids who went to school had, I would kind of play school, sometimes I played homework, but I never had any assigned myself. Uh, And then I was able to transition the way everybody in the school was into a later program middle school high school where there were some homework expectations so what the homework studies there's been a lot of homework studies um, some people manipulate the data one way or the other depending where their point of view is but if you take all these studies and and do a study of the studies what they come out is is that it's very age dependent if there's a homework benefit it's very age dependent and i think alfie Cohn, who is a guru of of homework studies it um, doesn't think there's value at any level. Um, I, I think what the studies are saying in general is that there is a slight benefit to some minimal homework at the high school level, a middle school statistically nearly insignificant and elementary school vanishes. So there's no academic benefit. However, there is behavior consequences that are negative for having too much homework at these younger ages, and that is the kids um, crying and staying up too late and losing sleep because they have to get their homework done to please their mom, who has to sign to say, yes, my kid has done this, who has to please the teacher, and the teacher has to please these parents who are pushing for the homework. So the kid is caught up in this stress of needing downtime. They don't have enough recess at school, so they need to unwind at home. Sometimes they, they're they carrying a lot of emotional weight from what happened on the bus or in the playground or at lunchtime. And so they need a time to run around a tree, <laughs> um, to, you know, jump up and down, to hug their cat, to, to have a story read to them, to feel the love, hopefully, in support of a family, and get a good night's sleep and be ready to go the next day. Uh, They don't need more grind at the end of the day. They don't necessarily, they're not necessarily going to learn anything more. But what these studies have shown is what kids turn against. They start to turn against school because the school is giving them homework and they can't take it emotionally at that point in the day. Um, They've had too much of it all day long. And so they're turning against school. And that then has more negative behaviors during the school day because they're having a negative attitude towards school and learning.
0: So what, what would be an alternative to homework? Like if they're going to give anything, what's something that actually is a benefit?
1: Yeah. Encouraging the families to say, take care of your kids. And (laughs) families want to do that anyway. And, and um, so helping them, Help cook in the kitchen. Well, there's math and science right there, as well as responsibility and contribution to the family. Family chores are fantastic. You know, taking out the recycling, um, sweeping the kitchen, um, feeding the dog, whatever it is in the family. Doing family chores, you want to have that in a school anyway, you know, having maybe a classroom job so that everybody's part of a team. Kids want to be part of a team. Um, And they're also learning actual life skills while doing their chores. Early beds, bedtime stories, songs, hugs, and time outside, um, time away from screens. There's so many things that we can encourage kids to do. If we encourage them to, think their own thoughts, even if they get bored sometimes, that sparks ideas and creativity um, and reading to them. I mean, just have, especially for kids learning to read, I get worried about people saying, oh, you should be, you know, reading Um, a certain number of minutes a day. I don't care about minutes. (laughs) Uh, I care about the joy in the reading. So it could be a short poem you're reading with the child. But also if your child's learning to read, don't force them to do the work because a lot of learning to read is not just the kid deciphering the code. It's understanding the language and the nuances of that and how our language works, especially if it's a second language for them. Um, So being read aloud to, Not only does that advance their thinking and their vocabulary, but it forms a bond between the people and it creates joy. Uh, We want to keep as much joy as possible in learning.
0: So maybe the teachers could give them, for example, um, they get to choose what they get to read, like maybe... Um, instead of us saying you have to read this, this, and this, like maybe, maybe giving them that free choice will inspire them to want to read more instead of just like, you have to read this many pages a night period.
1: Yeah. Don't count the pages. Don't count the minutes and, and you don't have people sign for a My kid has done this reading log, you know, there create instead rhythms and traditions at home. And, and you can, you can have, parent um, meetings to describe what your philosophy is, that this is what brings the most um, um, engagement with the kids and love of reading is reading aloud to them. And this is what we'd like to see. So, you know, choose their favorite books, choose your favorite books from your childhood, bring in something new, um, but make sure that it's something that creates wonder or contemplation or um, laughter um, read something funny, read Captain Underpants. It doesn't matter what it is as long as it's um, language and and uh, togetherness and and keeping it keeping it happy. You can read a sad book. That's fine too. <laughs> There's the contemplation for you.
0: And you touched on sleep for um, in your last um, what you were just sharing. And I know that sleep, just like play, really works, you say, but sometimes we don't take it seriously. So what are the benefits to prioritizing sleep for our kids? And and maybe how much sleep should a parent listening be considering for their elementary child?
1: Oh, my gosh, we are such a sleep deprived nation, (laughs) starting with infancy. So um, kids need so much more sleep than than adult American modern society allows or even even thinks of. Um, a lot of very young children, you know, they need they need sleep in the teens. My 12 um, year old still needs 13 hours of sleep. It does depend by child. So and, and high schoolers need um, nine, nine and a quarter hours, I believe the National Sleep Foundation is an excellent resource. If you're wondering how much for that particular age child you have, it's always more than you think. Um, danger signs if your child falls asleep while in a car, sleep deprived. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right? And if your yeah, child cannot wake up on her own at the normal pattern of the day, if they need an alarm clock or you to shake them awake, sleep deprived. You all of us humans will wake up in natural rhythms if we have enough sleep. Uh, mm-hmm. So we need sleep, our kids need sleep. And if you want to help out the teachers, you make sure that your child goes to bed early, I'm talking seven o'clock, 730, something early, so that the kid can be well rested. This is where all the um, having enough sleep means that the child is primed for for the best executive function and learning. Um, and memory, that's where we process memories, all the things we learned that day. So instead of doing a math worksheet, or, or um, spelling worksheet or something, when they get home, it's better for them to go to bed an hour or two earlier than And you would have, because that's where it encodes into the memory. So make sure the child has oodles of sleep. And that will help both with academics and with behavior. Because that's where if you can't have, you can't control your big bursts of emotion some days anyway, but you certainly can't when you have lack of sleep. And a lot of kids are perpetually deprived of enough sleep.
0: And isn't it true that when you rest, you're What you learned that day goes from your short-term memory into your long-term memory. Now that you're talking about that, I think I remember that.
1: Yeah. And we have learned, we as a a human race have learned more and more about the importance of sleep over time. And yet we discount it, it seems. We've learned more about the value of play and more about the value of sleep, the more science that we do. And yet we we discount it and ignore it um, with every passing Mm -hmm. year.
0: Well, thank you for bringing a focus and the light back on that, that area. And, and um, hopefully this encourages and inspires um, yeah. the parents. So to if, help you have,
1: oh, sorry. if you have um, one thing that you would like to tell your teachers of what they can tell their families is to help your child achieve best academic success in school, is to read them a bedtime story and put them to bed According to National Sleep Foundation guidelines, early, so sleep mm-hmm. and and reading to them, and otherwise, they don't need other homework
0: mm. oh, And they can so have free good.
1: time or family chores. You know, you can get the dishes washed, really, you can teach them to start washing those dishes, so you don't have to do it all,
0: yeah, yeah, because usually the kids doing the homework, and so they don't have time to help out to do any chores by the time they're done all that and eat and take a yeah. shower, or whatever you or an after school activity. But and
1: it's not going to hurt them later on. I mean, I've had a lot of conversations with um, teachers, I admire and respect teachers, but I also sometimes differ with um, their philosophies of what my child should be doing at home in my space. And so I've had conversations where they say, well, this social studies homework is mandatory, it's required, it's not an option, because I think it's respectful to explain my beliefs. And um, I would put a note sometimes saying, "I you know, uh, my child went to bed and we're not planning to do this project as a family. And I got a phone call one time saying, but this is mandatory. This social studies project is mandatory. And I said, I understand, but um, it's not something he's interested in doing. And as a five-year-old, unless he's interested in doing it and it's, he considers it his play, I'm not going to force him to do more school and non-school hours. And she said, "Um, well, he'll get a zero on his social studies assignment. And I refrained from saying whoop-dee-doo because I knew that wouldn't be um, kind. And I really like this teacher. <laughs> uh, but really getting a zero in social studies for in kindergarten is not a, a life-changing situation. Um, kids are fine as they grow up being able to do things and, and turn assignments in on time. And now I have a child, that same child who as a 12 year old will on his own without any um, prompting from me, Um, open his math book and get his math homework done because he's in eighth grade now and so he he takes full responsibility because homework in our house was always optional up through um, you know no up until middle school up until about seventh grade completely optional here's something your teacher wants you to do are you interested in doing it and if it's not bringing joy and and interest then um, it was optional and the teachers knew that. But at a certain time, you need you need to learn maybe to practice and schedule your day so you're ready for the rigors of high school. So I think seventh and eighth grade you can have a little practice homework, uh, but I do not think it's the parent's job to ever tell the child now it's time to do your homework. That is the child's responsibility. It's it's there. Um, it, it's not. It causes so much friction in families. The parent nagging, they become the homework cop, the kid in tears, the kid learning just to push back. It's not healthy for anybody. Um, and the younger you try to impose the homework, the more the kid is developmentally unable to remember it <laughs> or to even understand what the instructions are.
0: So important. And so you talk about kindergarten being out of sync with the developmental of what's appropriate for kids. What did researchers who study human development find out about teaching? For example, the concepts of time to kindergarten and first grade students.
1: Yeah, well, um, a lot of what I do is working with preschool teachers, um, and they tend to have the weather chart and the the calendar up, and they spend a lot of time every morning getting everybody sitting still and quiet and going through today's weather, thinking, if you care about the weather, put the kids outside. Then they'll know it's raining. Then they'll experience the rain. Um, we don't. Kids don't need to talk about the weather. The only kind of weather kids need to talk about are volcanoes and tornadoes and things that are big and you know exciting to them. But otherwise, that's a topic for adults. And as far as time. Um, The calendars really have no place for young children. What they've learned is that we waste a lot of time trying to teach them about time. Yes, we
0: do every day in kindergarten. It is the routine, Heather. Come on. All right. This is
1: going to. Yeah, I would take the the calendars right off the walls. Uh, Around age eight is when a child's brain can comprehend certain time um ideas long-term times and until then it's pretty darn fuzzy (laughs) so um some people call it around the age of seven plus or minus one so it you know there may be a kid who understands time a little earlier than some but there's also this in the same class going to be kids who understand it later you can't force this right? You can't, um, you can't force kids to grow, they're going to grow and they grow. It's the same thing. This is the growing of their brains and the connections in their brains. So time development starts out with things like, I want to go play with my friend yesterday, can we play with her yesterday? Or I'm going to bake my cake for 100 hours. These are showing the child's development of time ideas. They know that yesterday is a time marker. They don't really know that it means it happened already and we can't go do that tomorrow. But they know it's a time marker. I'm going to bake my cake for 100 hours. Ooh, that's so much math and science right now. They know that 100 is a big, powerful number. They know, but they don't really know what that means. Um, We're going to go see grandma on, on April 7th. That's three weeks from now okay, well, is she here yet? (laughs) You know, the ideas are not there about long-term time thinking. They start to settle into place. I've never met an eight-year-old or a nine-year-old who doesn't know what Monday is, but it's not going to come if we keep hammering it in when they're four and five and six, if... Uh, If their brain's not ready to grasp it. So we, we do this with a lot of concepts, but time is one of them, that we just waste time trying to teach a concept that their brains aren't ready to handle yet, they would be far better off in that half hour that you sit there trying to do the weather chart and the calendar, take those charts off the wall and let the kids have free playtime.
0: Well, that's a very uh, different shift in what I've known and what I see happening in schools. And just even as a teacher myself, when I started in first grade, um, so I what you're saying is just really, really uh, making us think differently. So this is going to be interesting when my teachers hear this and discussions we have about (laughs) what steps we take moving forward. Um, And I know I mentioned earlier how I, I really feel like kids over the years are coming in with less and less social skills and and and. And not 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 to sound bad in any way, but like we've I I and my teachers who I shared this with, we felt like it was families not teaching their kids these skills to be prepared in school for. But from what you're saying, if these are some of the skills that they need in their free play, maybe we in our school system aren't even providing the adequate opportunities for them to build them, and maybe that's why kids years and years ago or a generation ago, maybe in school there was more of a focus on that because we have seen the, the importance of the test scores go up and teacher accountability and the teachers rating on their test scores. Um, and so only from, from preparing for this interview and, and just listening to you today, it's making me think, wow, I wonder if it's really been almost like a school issue more than where I thought it would be a home issue.
1: I I wouldn't put all the blame in one place. Um, We, um, as adults in this modern American society, we particularly, um, we're in kind of an overprotection mode and a hurry up and get the academics in mode. Um, And so on the home front, Some of the overprotection is overprotecting kids from experiencing conflict, even among siblings or next door neighbors or cousins. So if there's a sharing issue, as you said, one of my books is it's okay not to share. We swoop in and sort of take the toy out and say, oh, you know, you've had that a long time. Um, You know, five minutes, you have to give it to your brother or again, a time concept. The kids don't know what five minutes means. So (laughs) get rid of those timers but we swoop in and um decide things like judge and jury we swoop in and uh we arrange the play dates with the kids and then we monitor and make sure that everybody's happy all the time um we make rules like only three people at the water table at one time at school perhaps why why can't we have a conflict um What happens? What are we worried about? Having too many people at the water table, too many people with the blocks. Um, What is too many anyway? Maybe there's some friendships and some social skill development that we're breaking up by not allowing kids to intermix with who they want to. Um, Or like going up the slide that we see that as a safety issue or of a lack of respect or all sorts of things, uh, negative things that we put on the kids kids on a playground who don't have adults badgering them about this will create amazingly creative lava monster games where some of the game is to go up the slide, which develops great physical skills that translates into being able to hold a pen and a pencil and these fine motor skills we say we're interested in. So let them use those big motor skills. Let them interact, have that conflict, figure it out. They may need our help at times like wow, it looks like you want to come down the slide and Jack wants to go up. I'm worried someone will get hurt. What can we do about it? And help them figure it out. But don't solve it for them. Don't make these blanket rules like nobody goes up the slide. You know, I think collectively, teachers, principals, um, well-meaning parents, babysitters, we're all getting in the way. We're all depriving them of free play time. And then we're um, interfering too much instead of providing the guidance of how to solve conflicts, the guidance when they need it of this emotional support where um, we're we're not giving them a chance to practice. And that's mm-hmm. the essential thing is time to practice. And in
0: closing, what message would you like to leave with families? Like if, if, if they listen to this whole interview, but you want them to go away, just remember this one thing, what would you say to them?
1: say, don't be scared of play. And this is is for teachers too. It's not about lack of control. It's not about free-for-all. If you're worried about free-for-all, then set limits. Free play does not mean a free-for-all. Free play means kids are allowed to follow their own ideas, but you as a responsible adult can set limits on those ideas. So if the idea is to flick paint, Maybe that's okay, but I don't want paint flicked in my face. I don't want the paint flicked on the wall. Take that outside. Or maybe we can't flick paint. That's too expensive. So what about food color in the water? You know, try to say yes to the idea, but you may have to set limits on the timing. Um, yes, you can, um, you can play chase, that running and chase game, but not under my pan of boiling water. Or yes, you can read a book, but not now. It's nap time. So we're always setting limits on timing and location um, or what you like or don't like to your body. So say yes to the play. Remember, you can set limits and then don't be scared because um, kids are built to play and we are built to um, love them and guide them on their way.
0: Thank you so much, Heather. And can you just tell us briefly about your podcast, which I did share with my school librarian, and she's sharing it with all of her librarian friends. So tell us a little bit about your podcast in case someone would love to listen to it and how um, someone can follow you to learn more and follow
1: you. Yeah, well, I have my um, early childhood um, and education books, but I also have um, children's books. And the one that's that that's out now is the Griffins of Castle Cary. It's for elementary and middle school ages, mostly. And so I've started a podcast on. Um, children's book and all things kid lit. Anybody who loves children and books and the complex ideas that they present, children's books have some of the most complicated concepts around. In fact, Madeline Langle, I think, said that she wrote for both adults and kids. How do you know whether your book is going to be for adults or kids? And she said, if the idea is too difficult, I write it for children. Mm -hmm. So my podcast is called Mm Book Smitten. Um, in love with books and it's co-hosted by me and three other uh, children's book authors from um, a range of perspectives so find us on apple podcasts or wherever and would love to get all those librarians listening in
0: well thank you so much heather thank you for your time today and i can't wait to um see what the thoughts that you have shared with us today are might might revolutionize some of the things we do even at my school so thank you
1: And thank you for having an open mind. The kids will thank you for the rest of their lives.
0: Well, that's all we've got for this episode of the Momnificent Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, I would be honored if you would subscribe and rate if you really liked it. I know wherever you're listening right now, it might not be the best time to leave a comment, but feel free to leave a question, a review, or a comment at any time. And until next time, remember, don't worry. Be happy.